Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. The whole area of paradox of choice is if you give people too many choices about things, you know, choice is meant to be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because people get just stumped. Start by figuring out what's the problem you want to solve. So what are your goals? What is it that you're looking to get people to do? All of these problems are solved differently. So before we even dig into what should we do, you need to sit down and figure out what do you want? They were talking about in a hotel chain, how could we recognize when customers have come back? They basically, when the guy was taking the cases out of the car for the person, he would basically just say, have they been here before? And he would then wink to the front desk. And then when they walked up to the front desk, they say, nice <laughs> of you to come back again, you know? This podcast is sponsored by Verant. Verant helped the world's most iconic brands build enduring customer relationships by connecting work, data, and experiences across the enterprise. The Verant Customer Engagement Cloud Platform draws on the latest advancements in AI and analytics, an open cloud architecture, and the science of customer engagement to meet ever-increasing, ever-shifting consumer interactions and demands. So, Ryan, we got a message from uh, Jeff Paul from a company called Human Behavioral Labs. He wrote to us. Would you like to hear what he said? I would love to hear. And thank you, Jeff, for writing in. Absolutely. He said, I'm not sure whether you have ever specifically covered the topic of how a small business, i.e. family-owned restaurant, with limited resources can improve their customer experience. Part of the outreach that we do here at the lab is speaking to businesses about incorporating behavioral science in their business, but a lot of them are too small to engage the services of professionals like you. He must be talking about me there, mate, not not you, but you know. Yes, no, obviously. <laughs> I mean, if they if they want like professional services of I don't like washing a car or something, make it engage me for that. Babysitting, yeah, I do. Again, I mean that's what professors do, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> We actually do a lot of babysitting, yeah, now that I think about that, we do. He goes on to say, we have a lot of tips, our own tips and strategies that we offer them, but it would be interesting to have our take on it. So, Jeff, I chatted to Ryan about this, and we thought, oh, this is a good idea, and always pleased to hear from our listeners and always pleased to take up our ideas. So today, Ryan and I have decided that we're going to set up a restaurant, and because we don't have much money, we're going to try to pick things that people can do in a restaurant, uh, in our restaurant, that will uh, hopefully be from a behavioral science perspective that would improve the customer experience. That sounds good. So, Ryan, do you want to go first? What's your? We've set up this restaurant. Yeah. I don't know what we're going to call it, but what would you suggest that we need to do from a behavioral science perspective to improve sure. the customer experience? So I know that Jeff was looking for some concrete ideas and, and Colin, that was the challenge you, you posed to me when you suggested this as a topic. And I think that's great. And I will get to that. But on my list, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to start with some abstract stuff before we get to the, the free 
You ideas. definitely are a professor, aren't you? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I cheat <laughs> a lot too. I cheat and I babysit and that's what I do. So a lot of times when people look to apply behavioral science ideas, they start with the idea or the effect or the theory. So they may have read about, you know, the decoy effect or something. And then they go looking around for ways to apply that. I'm going to suggest that if you want to start with something cheap and easy to do with your behavioral science, you need to start by figuring out what's the problem you want to solve. So what are your goals? What is it that you're looking to get people to do? So for example, in our in our new restaurant, which I assume we'll, we'll call something like, you know, Hamilton's Cafe, something like that. What are our goals? Do we have a particular entree that is very profitable for us? And therefore, we want to steer people towards choosing that. Well, that's going to present a set of ideas that we can try to implement. Do we instead want to have people spend less time in the restaurant so we have greater turnover or more time in the restaurant? All of these problems are solved differently. So before we even dig into what should we do, you need to sit down and figure out what do you want, right? So that's my first tip. Figure out what are the problems, the concrete, specific problems that you want to solve And then you can start to think about behavioral science. Yeah, that's a good thought. And let me build on that. And this is one big thing I've noticed about the difference between eating out in the UK and eating out in America, okay? Because people tend to eat out a lot more in the States than they do in the UK. And one of the big things I've noticed is there's a difference between eating and dining. Yeah. Yep. So when we're here, in, and I say here because I'm in America, you tend to go out and it's you, everything's done really quickly. And before you know it, you're heading out the door again. We're, we're very goal oriented. Calories into face. Get it done. Let's make this happen. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, I actually think it's because people just in England, it, oh, whether it's just me, and, and this is actually, this is, goes to my overall point, which is segmentation, basically. You know, know your customers. So all I was going to say with, with me is we we still eat in a fair bit, but in the States, people tend to eat out more, but they're eating out not to dine, not to, as a social experience, but more as a, as a function of I'm hungry, I've been working hard, I don't want to cook, I don't want to clear all the plates up, let's go out and have something, or that's my perception anyway. Whereas dining is different, and to your point, Ryan, if you're going out to eat, you want something and you want to be one and done in an hour. Yeah. If you're going out to dine, you know, I can go out to dine with friends and it could be two or three hours. And therefore the pricing structure, how many tables they have, the turnover rates, the, you know, the business dynamics and everything else that underlie all those things are absolutely different. I'm going to call that our first two ideas for how to do behavioral science on the cheap. And we haven't even gotten to the behavioral science yet. This is just laying the groundwork. So mine was know what you want, like know what your goals are, what the problems are you want to solve. Colin's first one then is understand your customers and what they want. Like what are their kind of goals and drives and motives in order to get to this specific behavioral science stuff, we need to start broad and kind of funnel down to specific insights that we're going to get to. So I think that that's a good groundwork for us to lay. Good. Okay. So just question. And it was a great one is, you know, what do you do if you don't have a lot of money to spend on this stuff? You know, you can't engage expensive consultants or, or even more expensive professors to help you out on this. A lot of the the expense associated with these decisions is whether it comes on cycle or off cycle, right? So if you have something new that you want to try 
and it involves changing everything you're doing, that can be very expensive. If on the other hand, you have a regular cycle of redesign or of printing or of mailings, then each of those represents a chance to change something and try something different. So if, if you know, if you've got a, a restaurant every once in a while, you need to reprint your menus, you know, when, when prices change or when you've got new things that you're adding or, well, every time you change, reprint the menu, that's an opportunity for you to, at no additional cost, also make behavioral changes, right? So if you're looking to do this on the cheap, just look for ways of integrating behavioral science into the, the regular decisions that you make every day in running your business. So Colin and I, if, if we're starting Hamilton's Fine American Foods restaurant, then we're starting from the ground up. So all the decisions we're making, there's kind of no additional cost of incorporating behavioral science into that. If the restaurant has existed for a while, you know, then it can be expensive to just tear everything up and start over from the beginning. But when you remodel the inside of your restaurant, well, this is now an opportunity to, at no additional cost, incorporate behavioral insights or reprinting the menu or all of those regular decisions that you make. Excellent. Yeah, good point. And, and as we're just about to sort the menu out, and because I'm the more practical one, I'm going to give you a couple of practical things to do. Let's hear it. Okay. So the paradox of choice. Mm -hmm. In other words, limit the menu. Don't have half a million things, yeah, with half a million options. You know, limit the choice. I think Gordon Ramsay, anybody that watched his programs will will tell you that's one of the, the, the key things. Because people, the whole area of paradox of choice is if you give people too many choices about things, you know, choice is meant to be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because people get just stumped as to what in the hell to order. And if you're anything then like my wife, she she always then reckons that she's ordered the wrong thing. And when she looks at with meal envy, everybody else's order. Uh, and I'm going to throw another one in here. I can't remember what the science is around this, but don't put dollar signs on the menu. Yeah. Because by putting a dollar sign on the menu, it associates it with money. And therefore, by not putting the dollar sign on there, and you'll notice this now, I tell you, in different restaurants you go to, uh, quite a few don't put the dollar signs on because that starts to get people to think it's not necessarily real real money, if you like. Yeah, I think that's great. Let's dig into both of those a little bit before we move on because they're both really important. Uh, this paradox of choice thing is is really counterintuitive. Like if you ask people, do you want more options or fewer options? Everybody's going to tell you more. Like it's better to have more options. And yet, if you ask people, like, the last time you sat down to Netflix, what did you do? It's disturbingly common for people to say, well, I scrolled through the hundreds and hundreds of movie options that they have, and then I just turned off the TV and walked away without watching anything. We can become very overwhelmed with choice. And and like your your wife, there's, it's also, there's also been the research into the fact that when we have more options, we can be less satisfied with the one that we choose because of this, you know, opportunity cost. There, there are all of these options that we couldn't choose. And when we, when we evaluate it in those larger sets, it can feel like we're losing even if we had more options to choose from by comparison. Yep. No, absolutely. I, I always remember going into a, a store. Uh, we were engaged by a Russian equivalent of Best Buy. And we went into this store. And we were doing this thing called a customer mirror that we do, which is effectively acting as a customer and walking around. 
I've never seen so many choices of webcams in my life in this store. <laughs> you know, there was literally like 30 or 40 different choices. And it just became just so overwhelming that you just went, actually, I'm just not going to bother, you know, because I haven't got a clue which ones, what's the subtle difference between this one and that one. If you have a large assortment, so maybe just, you know, our chef is very skilled in lots of things. And, and so, you know, we want that to be a part of the draw. You need to organize the assortment in such a way that it it is manageable. So, you know, if you're, if our menu just has a hundred different options on it and they're all just kind of listed out, that would be a disaster, right? But there may be ways of organizing it so that you can still have a lot of options, but they are easy to choose from, easy to navigate from. So I, I like to point to the, the Coca-Cola freestyle machines. So these exist in a lot of fast food restaurants and movie theaters and things where, you know, you can go up to this machine and there are literally hundreds of different soda options that you can choose. You can program exactly what you want and it'll give you even flavors and, and options that it, it's hard to find in stores anywhere. It'll like mix it for you right there. But the, the interface doesn't present you with 300 soda options. It allows you to sort like by four different options first. Do you want, do you want fruit flavor? Do you want a cola? Do you want a diet? Do you want something else? And then so you, it's this decision tree and you make like two or three decisions and boom, you're there to your final selection. It's super easy. So limit the size of your assortments. That's just good advice. If there are cases where you can't or where there's some advantage to having a larger assortment, make it as easy as possible for people to find what they want and choose what they want. Yep. Excellent. Good. So behavioral science, I'm not sure if this is behavioral science, I guess it is, but recognize people. When somebody comes in to the restaurant and you recognize them or make sure that you try to recognize people, you know, saying, hello, Colin, hello, Ryan, nice to have you back. Those little things absolutely improve the experience. People want to be wanted. I've got a story for this. Somebody posted on the internet, it was on a blog about people meeting celebrities and what they were like in real life and how many of them were very nice and how many of them were jerks. Somebody talked about meeting a, a celebrity and the reaction was when, when this person, a friend introduced him to the celebrity, the celebrity's reaction when he heard the person's name was, oh my God, of course. Like, hey, this, this is my friend, John. And the celebrity said, oh, John, of course. And the person writing this said, I knew this guy had no idea who I was. But because he acted like he was an old friend or he had heard so much about him, he felt immediately just appreciated and loved. And so even in settings where we objectively, rationally know that we're not being recognized, that feeling of familiarity, of being appreciated, of being singled out, all of those things are going to make the person's experience better. And if you can genuinely know who they are and remember them, that is going to be exceptionally powerful. That's an interesting point, actually, because one of the things I would do would be I would provide training to my wait staff on techniques to memorize people's faces. That's great. There was a guy back in the day that used to run training for us when I was in um, corporate life. He had this incredible way, memory, of getting introduced to people around the table that he was then going to be training for the next four days. And he knew everybody, and it's something to do with associating pictures with memories and uh, pictures with names. I would invest in that. I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to visit verant.com backslash boundless to download the latest research report on the engagement capacity gap. 
I would also suggest you go to verant.com backslash engage to register for Engage 21, the company's annual customer engagement event. An award-winning storyteller, Jay Shetty, is one of the keynotes who will be kicking off the conference that runs between May 19th through to the 21st. It's an interactive, free, three-day virtual conference that's open to everybody, and you'll discover best practices and tools that can help you build enduring customer relationships. Register at verant.com backslash engage. That's verant.com backslash engage. Let me give you another practical one. I think this is, again, really important. Understanding what customers want. So, again, we've, we've talked about are they coming to eat or are they coming to dine? But one of the, I, You, you I wrote, need to be careful how, how you enunciate your words, Colin. It sounded like are they coming to eat or are they coming to die? <laughs> Which, dine. you know, that, no. that might, that might be no. an, an option for our restaurant, Colin. <laughs> it's like, you know, food and euthanasia clinic. Like you could cradle the grave service, something like that. Anyway, go ahead. I wrote a blog a little while ago, which we will put again in the show notes, of which was entitled Three Things That Drive Me Mad About Restaurants. And in there, this ties to understanding your customers. It really bugs me when you're in a restaurant you're having a conversation and one of the waiters comes up and just totally interrupts the conversation, <laughs> you know, yeah. or they spend five minutes talking to you and you don't want to talk to the waiter. You want to talk to the people you've, you've come with, or I have to say there are other times and, you know, and again, now we're again into segmentation. So it's not just who the person is, but it is, do they typically like being talked to and chatted about? Do they typically not like being talked to? And remembering those things, I think, is is really important. And again, another little anecdote of something that um, has just crossed my mind, which I, I think you could apply here. And th- I wrote about this in one of my books. They were talking about, in a hotel chain, how could we recognize when customers have come back? Okay. So, you know, could we put in this expensive CRM system? So, you know, when a customer comes back in, you could actually turn around and say, hello, Ryan, you know, nice to have you back again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it turns out what this hotel did was they basically, when the guy was taking the cases out of the car for the person, he would basically just say, have they been here before? Yeah. And he would then wink to the front desk. You know, to say yes, they've been here before. Yeah, <laughs> and then when they walked up to the front desk, they say, "Oh, it's nice to nice that you can do, come back again." You know, so I, I, I guess I'm what I'm trying to say is there's little manual things that you can do like that. You know, little tricks like that that you could do in the restaurant as well. That's great. That's great. All right, I've got a practical one. Ready? Okay. It's about time. I know you've waited for it, Colin. I'm surprised, but pleased. <laughs> So do you have status quo options? So this facilitates choice for people. So are there options that are kind of the default or the assumed option, right? So if we're setting up the menu, it could be that we have, you know, eight different kinds of tacos, but one of them is marked as the house specialty and is printed larger than the others. And that then becomes like, I'm overwhelmed with the taco choices here, but like that seems to be the easiest taco option to choose, right? So no matter what you're selling, especially if you've got larger option sets, like can you make choice easier by providing a default or a status quo option? Now, let me build on that because that's a really good thought. 
And it reminds me of Lorraine, my wife, okay? We've been to this restaurant in Sarasota a number of times. Mm-hmm. And Lorraine has had the pork chop yes. every time we've been. <laughs> okay? Every time. And I say to her, you know, why don't you try something else on the menu? But it reminded me of what you were just saying, reminded me of a podcast we did a little while ago where I can't remember what the what the psychological principle was, but it was something about if you ask people to choose for a variety of food that they want or a variety of things they want in a you know like three or four weeks time then the choice that they tell you about is far greater than if you ask them to choose straight away i've probably totally butchered that no no you were summarized it pretty well so if you ask people to choose a snack for the next three weeks they will seek out more variety then if you ask them each week, which snack would you choose? So people kind of forecast they're going to need more variety. They're going to assume they want more variety going forward than they actually want in real time. So the interesting bit about that would be if you ask customers, if we are on open, or the opening of our restaurant, we ask customers what food they want. They may tell us that they want a greater variety than what they actually want. Yeah, absolutely true. Mm, that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one that I've got is, so define the experience. And for those of you that don't know, I'm mad on customers' memories. And we know that memories are formed by the peak end rule. Daniel Kahneman talks about what people remember in an experience is the peak emotion that they felt, and they remember the end emotion that they felt. So for me, the important part here would be to think about by customer segment, and that's an important aspect, where is the peak emotion that you want your customers to feel? What is that point of that peak emotion? Is it when the food's being delivered? You know, is it when they're entering the restaurant and you're acknowledging them in some way? You know, and what's that ends experience like? It always surprises me, and maybe I just look into this stuff in too much detail, but the time when I get a lot of interaction from wait staff is when they're delivering the check because they I'm being um, I'm being very cynical now because they know I'm going to make a decision about the tip yeah and and incidentally I wouldn't I would make my wait staff not so dependent upon tips because I don't think that's a good practice but so for me define the peak part of that experience and define the the end end experience and define the emotions and how you're going to evoke those and remember that endings are really important yeah that's great the peak end rule has a couple of implications for people who are, are trying to figure out customer experience and one of them is, is what you just said there at the end which is focus on the ends like how the experience concludes turns out is really important so did the person have to wait an extra long time to get their check after the meal? Or alternatively, did they feel rushed by having the check brought too soon as they were trying to enjoy a conversation? These things at the end really drive customers' overall sense of the experience and then also the peak. So if you want to improve the experience, the peak end rule tells us that those two points are the, the most influential. So we want to improve the end and improve whatever the peak emotional aspect of the experience was. If we can make both of those things better, then the overall experience will be better too. So that's a great one. So one that I have is, I just called it attentional effects. But the idea is that there's a lot of things in behavioral science that are driven by attention. 
So they've run experiments in cafeterias, for example, where if they put the desserts at eye level, people tend to get more desserts. And if they put the fresh fruit at eye level, people tend to get more fresh fruits on their meals. So pay attention to what your customers are paying attention to. You know, how do you lay out your menu? But then also, how do you lay out your restaurant? And where, where will the eye naturally go? And that's a bit important point I was just thinking of is because the danger is, is that the person typically would be standing up where the customer would be sitting down. So their eye level will be different. That is a great point. In fact, I was, I think the one I was going to end with is the difference in customer and, and employee perspectives. But it, it's true for all of these things. Like the, the things that are important to me, the things that I consider to be the, the most important attention grabbing aspects may or may not be from the perspective of my customer. And in that case, it's nice because it's the actual physical perspective of the customer, whether they're sitting or standing. I remember another good story from hotels where they were training the cleaning staff to get into the shower, or oftentimes the bath is the shower as well, get into the shower and stand where the customer would stand to see what's clean and what's not, because typically people wouldn't get into it and look at it from a customer's perspective. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I'm going to refer to, because we could carry on for hours on this one. This is a great one, Jeff. I'm going to refer to two other podcasts that we've we've done recently. And again, we'll put the links in, in the show notes. One is about the smell. What does the restaurant smell like? What are the noise levels in the restaurant? What type of music are you playing? There are some restaurants that I go into. In fact, there's one where we live in Sarasota that my wife and I won't go into now because it's just too noisy, you know? You can't hear yourself think, you know, and you can't talk. Uh, it's not because of music. It's just because they haven't thought about the acoustics of the, of, of the place and the smell. We did a, we did a really good podcast with Simon a little while, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which will be worth listening to. My consistent bad experience with live music at restaurants is that the performers are cranked up way too loud. So every once in a while I'll go into a restaurant and they'll have somebody with a guitar and singing or, or a piano and singing some songs. And for them, from their perspective, it's a concert. And so they want everybody to be able to hear it. And so even though we're in this tiny restaurant, they'll have cranked the noise up really loud. And from the perspective of the restaurant, most of those diners had no idea there would be live music there that day. They just wanted to eat and to enjoy company with their friends. And you can't hear anything. You can't talk to anybody. So... Again, understand things from your customer's perspective and especially things like sense and like noise. We can become very nose blind to sense that are happening around us, whereas a customer walking in off the street might be very struck by those things. So good points. And the last one from me is, again, we did a, another really good podcast on how to manage customer wait time and therefore, you know, understanding the psychology of waiting is really important. And again, I'm not going to go into it here. I would recommend that you go off and listen to that podcast. But for as an example, keeping customers busy as they wait is an important aspect of things because people's perception of how long the wait is, so it could be them, them waiting for a table or something like that, 
that people's perception of how long the wait is is dependent upon a number of factors, not least of which is, are they engaged in some way? Have they been kept informed of how long things will be? Have they been kept informed of the reason for the wait? And again, we did a podcast recently on lying. Don't turn around to the customer and suddenly go, yeah, your food's going to be coming out in a minute. And when you know it's still going to be another 10 minutes, you know, you need to have that you know, that honest conversation with the, with the customer. So thinking about it, a number of these areas are actually about, you know, designing that experience and training the wait staff on on this stuff. Any, anything to add on that, that wait time one, Ron? No, I will, I will give my last one and we'll conclude with that. Extremeness aversion is another simple, easy behavioral science principle that you can add. The basic idea is that a lot of times people don't want to choose an extreme option, but you as the restaurant owner, as the business owner, often get to decide what constitutes extreme. So the most expensive or the least expensive items on your menu will tend to be considered extreme. And so people are less likely to choose that. Anecdotally, oftentimes it's the second least expensive wine on the menu that tends to sell the best at many restaurants. And it's because people don't want to choose the cheapest one. And so they choose the second cheapest one, right? And so, you know, a lot of restaurants will put their a high margin wine in that slot because they know that it's likely to be chosen. Uh, if you want people to choose one of the more expensive items on your restaurant, then maybe when your servers goes around to talk about the specials, one of the specials should be the lobster option, right? So now if I'm telling you that this special is the $80 plate, then all of the $50 entrees on the menu suddenly seem much more reasonable by comparison because they're no, no longer as extreme. So that would be the last one that I would offer. I've got to tell you, mate, we're not serving lobster at our, our, our restaurant. I think that Hamilton's fine American cuisine <laughs> might serve lobster on occasion. And the beautiful part is if that's one of the specials and it's the most extreme price, very few people are going to order it anyway. So we can have it there on the menu to get people to order the, the $50 fish and chips straight from Britain. Yeah. <laughs> Out of a newspaper. With that's brown the, sauce. Brown sauce and malt vinegar and salt. Can't beat it. Right. Okay, good. So, Jeff, thank you very much for that idea. It's really good. I'm Ryan really enjoyed debating all of this. If anybody's got any other suggestions of what we could kick around, then please let us know. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Okay, cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>